This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. everyone welcome to the dunked on basketball podcast very special edition not just any wednesday night great great basketball game tonight between the spurs and clippers spurs win it in ot 111 107 lots of gyrations back and forth in this game where both teams looked like they might be in control uh what are your takeaways danny uh overall from this game where the spurs were able to tie the series God, there were a lot of them. I mean, one of them to me was the way that Doc used his bench, which I know is something that you talked about as well on Twitter. And so in the first half, he did a lot more of what I think a lot of us think that he should do, which is... And, and every coach should do, maybe. Yeah, which is which is staggering and using using your guys so that you have the minimum amount of lulls. And then in the second half, they did substantially less than that, which is strange because it worked in the first half. Yeah, I think the big thing was they didn't have any minutes, I believe, in the first half with no Paul or Griffin, as we've talked about on previous episodes. They got killed in the first game when they had no Paul and Griffin in there, uh, especially in the first half. And their bench actually got them back into it when they were down after the first quarter. And then the Spurs came back to take a lead at halftime, uh, starters on starters. So it worked great. I don't know why they went away from it. Maybe Doc was just distracted by the fact they went to the hack of Jordan at the end of the third quarter. I don't know. Um, So I I think, well, the way we'll handle this is, got a lot of notes from the game, obviously. Why don't we just go through, basically chronologically, with some some of the observations. And this is going to be a great level of detail, but hopefully with it fresh in everyone's mind, it'll be interesting. Uh, So you guys can let us know uh, what you think of this format. So the first thing that I noted was the adjustments for game two pop had this thing uh this quote in the pregame media session where he said oh adjustments are overrated blah blah it's all comes down to making shots and just playing harder and yeah obviously that's true but and he said i think oh we just make adjustments so you think i'm doing something but uh, they did do some stuff that actually mattered uh one of the things was they really emphasized moving the ball quickly against the Clippers pick and roll coverage, which was blitzing out with uh, DeAndre Jordan most of the time. They got back to what they did against Miami in the finals last year, where they were able to make a very quick pass back to the middle of the floor. And then they were able to find, at least initially on the dunker, the guy who was uh, the other big who's right on the baseline, they were able to prevent 
the big Jordan from getting back to that guy in time. And they're able to get a couple buckets off of that. Then when the Clippers took away that, they're able to find shooters on the weak side. They're just moving the ball much more quickly. And it seemed like that was a big emphasis for them. Yeah, I, I think that you, I, you I, it, yeah, you just have to make that sort of adjustment. And then, so we saw that on that side. And then the Spurs, from what I could tell, and it seemed like you saw the same thing, they were also making defensive adjustments on pick and rolls too. Yeah, they were. One play that the Clippers had a lot of success with, the Spurs really like to pressure up the opposing point guard. Mm -hmm. And the Clippers would go with two high picks uh, set on what would be the elbows, but basically as close to midcourt as they could. So they could then get the point guard going downhill against some of the bigs. The Spurs actually switched that, had some success early on, but then by the third quarter, they still didn't have much of an answer to that. Paul started blowing by whoever they were trying to switch out on, especially when they went in the direction of Duncan. Duncan had to come out far enough on the floor, and Paul was moving at such a speed that he was able to get by him. Or then they were able to get the ball to Blake Griffin on, on that switch, and he was able to abuse whoever the point guard was. So still a very, very effective play for the Clippers and something that I think they're going to continue to use until the Spurs can find an answer for it. Yeah, it, it's a challenging thing, and it's part of what makes L.A. so special is that there are certain moves that they have that there, as far as I can tell, there isn't an effective counter. Can you think of something that hasn't really been tried in this series that might work? Well, against that play, I, mean, I think one thing you could do is just not pressure up so much. It, it looked like even that the Clippers might have had that as kind of an automatic where if the pressure was kind of getting to Paul and getting into him a little bit near half court, that they... Griffin and Jordan would just both go up and set that screen. So maybe you back off a little bit, but then, you know, that's a big tenet of their defense. So I don't see a, a great solution to that. Those, the Clippers have those three guys, Jordan, uh, Griffin, and Paul, are great players. And with that particular play, it makes things difficult. And one of the guys who was really notable in this game for a lot of different reasons from the beginning of the game to overtime was Danny Green. He had a had a really up and down game, but I think that the Spurs are still having trouble in a way f figuring out his role because he's so different offensively than a guy like Manu or even Marco Bellinelli. Yeah, I, I can't for the life of me understand what the rationale is for when Green is in and when he's out. Frankly, he doesn't play that many minutes. He had a great season by statistics, but as we noted and was apparent in this game, he has limitations trying to dribble and, and finish. I think he needs to just. At this point, if he doesn't have a wide-open layup, just drive to pass every time because his floaters just have no chance of going in at all. Um, but obviously, I think he's by far uh, the best defender other than Kawhi of their wings. He might even do a little better job on Chris Paul than Kawhi does, and Kawhi does a really nice job on Redick. So, uh, I, you know, I still think Green should be in there more. Pop started him in the second, didn't play him that much. Marco got some minutes, and he'd been hitting some shots, so you can't argue with that too much. But then Pop starts him in the second half and puts Marco in after like a minute and a half. I couldn't see what Green did. Yeah, I didn't I didn't yeah. see anything. He might have missed rotation, but I didn't see him miss it. Yeah, it, and so then, you know, his playing time was spotty throughout the rest of the second half, and then they put him back in, and he had a really nice overtime. They put him back in to start the overtime, and he, and he played the entire overtime. So I really... I don't understand what the rationale is. I'd love to, to ask someone, like, what, what you're thinking when you, you take him in and put him out, because I couldn't really... I mean, not only was it one of those things where I didn't agree with it, but I couldn't even understand, like, what the basis was for taking him in and out, but at least that particular aspect of Pop's strategy worked tonight. 
And when you have defensive players like the Spurs do that can also play offense, you can afford to play somebody whose primary value is defensive, even at a guard position, because they're not getting zeros from Kawhi. They're not getting a zero from Timmy. So they can do that. They just haven't embraced that sense. I mean, to me, what you use him for is more of a defensive specialist who isn't a huge liability on offense. So let's move on now later into the game with some more specific observations. One was that uh, Doc decided for the last 46 seconds of the third quarter to go with that all-bench unit. He at least left Redick in, which is better because then you, you have kind of at least somewhere to go, although you know Crawford is, or Redick doesn't really make that much of a difference with the bench unit. But So he thought he could get away with it, and Patty Mills makes two three-pointers in the last 46 seconds. He, that was the, he went with Turk, who hadn't played at all, and Austin Rivers, Big Baby, and Reddick, and uh, the last person is Casey. But, um, and then, after they got killed, you would have thought maybe he was going to come back with Griffin. You would have staggered things a little more. No, then he started off the fourth quarter with those same guys, basically, and they lost more ground and, and then ended up being behind. And then the Clips spent the entire rest of the fourth quarter trying to dig out of that hole. And they were helped, in a way, digging out of that hole by the return, though it happened earlier in the game, too, of Hacka DeAndre. And I, that's a storyline in this game as well, because there there's some great work out there. Seth Partnow wrote a nice, nice piece for B-Ball Breakdown today talking about it. And there are some merits to it, but there were also some real frustrations that I had with the way that they were implementing it. Well, I, we talked about this on Sunday night show. And what we said is Doc, or at least what I said was, I thought Doc should just leave him in there and make a deal with it. And you know what? It actually kind of worked. I think there were a number of factors that all played in the Clippers' favor. One was that there are just more possessions. That helps when you're down. Secondly, they were able to get a lot of offensive rebounds in that situation, and, and the Spurs couldn't stop them from doing that. So that really reduced the math for the Spurs. And then also the Spurs were, or I'm sorry, the Clippers were able to play great defense. And I think the Spurs were up 83 or 88 to 83. And they only scored two points. The, the Clippers went on a 12, two run over almost four minutes. The Spurs were getting a lot of possessions. Couldn't score because it was a set defense. Not only that, another thing we didn't talk about was that when you do the hack, the defense gets to rest for 30, 30 seconds while you shoot the free throws. So it's basically, you know you're only going to be defending for 24 seconds. You can give maximum effort every time. You're never going to get any transition points, get guys tired. You know, you're just going against a set defense every time, and they couldn't have much success. Granted, they missed a couple of easy ones with Tim Duncan in that stretch, but overall they were forced to run the shot clock down. They weren't able to get the ball movement they would have wanted, and they were taking tough shots, and it let them get back into the game. Two other points that I would bring up with it that were that I was critical of and that were just flaws is one is that they weren't letting the clock run down when the Clippers weren't being dangerous. They were fouling yeah. early regardless, and when you're ahead, I, I think I actually really like Hacka in certain circumstances when you're ahead because it can disjoin a couple things. And I, you, you can argue it both ways because it extends the number of possessions and all that, so there is certainly merit to that, but... When you do it in that way, as you said, it also has the mental effect of not making them stress, but also 
the way that you use Hakka in my mind, if you wanted to keep it in the current system, is you use it when the opposing team's offensive expectancy goes up. You don't use it just because it's there. And so you can get in those circumstances, especially when you're outside the last two minutes, and they don't even have to be near the ball. They had one circumstance later in the game where uh, Popovich actually got a technical arguing about it because they tried to foul DeAndre, and I don't feel like we should have a pity party for them, but they don't, uh, but they they didn't call it, and then I think Redick made that big three. Also, incidentally, that leads into the other one, which is that doing it the way they did it and not being particularly, I don't know if the word is cognizant, of who is committing the fouling led to yeah, Tim Duncan was, playing the end of the game in foul trouble, and from what I recall, Duncan is the one who was fouling DeAndre on the one that wasn't called, and so obviously you could say he, other things would have played out, but that's a huge mistake with the system. Yeah, Duncan, I think, committed two of those fouls. Manu committed at least one, and then Manu ended up fouling out. And you could see Manu, maybe he was upset with himself for taking an intentional foul on a fast break to foul out, but he was just so upset he went straight into the locker room. I imagine not because he was hurt. And, I mean, if I were a player, I'd be pretty annoyed too. Like, basically, by fouling like that, you're telling me as a player that you don't have confidence in our defense to actually stop them when we have the lead. And what's more... You're now forcing me to foul so that I don't even get to play the rest of the game. I just fouled out because of this strategy that wasn't really working. And you're making my job way harder now to score offensively. I think you, we may have reached a point, certainly in this in, in this particular game, where it reached the point of diminishing returns. I mean, and Tim Duncan had five fouls for he managed not to foul out, but he definitely had some times where he came pretty close. Uh, you know, he had some blocks. He played great defensively down the stretch, but man, like what if Tim Duncan fouled out because he got two or three intentional fouls on DeAndre Jordan on a strategy that didn't work anyway? That's yeah. uh, got a lot of egg on your face there. And then they, and then also the strategy unwittingly led to Pop's technical, which they managed to dodge a bull down with that J.J. Redick shot hung on the rim forever and like a, a hanging chad, as Kevin Harling called it, and then fell off. So maybe that technical could have cost him the game too. I mean, really... You know, we think that Pop is is a great coach, but and does amazing work behind the scenes. But there are a lot of very inexplicable things tonight, and frankly, that San Antonio is lucky to get out of it. Yeah, and I, you have to take something from the Clippers because we talked about how in in Game One the Clippers played a really really good game and they won and they won impressively. They didn't play as well tonight, but they still put a really good effort out there and they had plenty of chances to win the game so if I'm a Clippers fan obviously you don't want to lose a game at home I mean a lot of people say it's a series isn't a series until the road team wins a game but what they showed is that it doesn't take them having a great game and the Spurs having a bad game for them to win in this series so yeah I mean uh, Bob Vulgaros who uh, is another great in-game tweeter noted after the game that the Spurs scored exactly zero points after DJ free throw attempts. And he also noted that same thing that you did about uh, when to foul. So uh, then we get into uh, down the stretch. The Clippers were up by two. Uh, they did a great job of uh, getting back into the lead. You know, we don't want to take away from the great game that they had. Blake Griffin was unbelievable with his passing tonight. Uh, really had an outstanding game until he had two bad turnovers, the first of which was he was matched up against Bellinelli uh, after a switch, and 
when they switched the pick and roll with him and Paul trying to run the clock down and just basically kicked it off his foot. They threw it ahead to Patty Mills, and he made two ice free throws to tie the game. Chris Paul rimmed out uh, his famous elbow jumper. He was pushed out just a little bit more than he might have liked on that. And then we went into the overtime. Uh, what stood out from you from a strategic standpoint in the overtime? In the, in the overtime, I, I think that well, we didn't see we didn't see the fouling, and I liked that they the Clippers. The yeah, because yeah, you can't. I don't think you can foul in the overtime. Oh, I, I honestly don't know how that rule applies, but Danny Green came back in, which I'm a big supporter of Danny Green, and obviously it was changed because Manu couldn't play because he had already fouled out, but. I really liked on the look that he got from what I recall. I think it was partially a, a, a it was a help issue, but his corner three was wide open, and I felt like that changed the tenor of the overtime immediately. Yeah. That was like, that what, was the first bucket of the overtime, um, and what it was was uh, Kawhi came off a pick at the elbow. Uh, I think it was set by Dia, and Blake Griffin didn't help out well enough. That made uh, the man guarding Green in the corner have to give help at the rim, and then Green was wide open for that three. So that was the first Clippers breakdown that put them up three, uh, put the Spurs up three. And as you brought up on Twitter and and just talking about it, we were Patty Mills was playing a better game than Tony Parker, but it appears that Tony Parker had an injury, so that partially can affect it. I think I they reported this out on report reported that it was an Achilles Achilles related. Yeah, sore right Achilles, that's why he was out. I mean, I think a lot of people, including me, were saying that Mills should be in there. And, and that was actually another adjustment from Pop that did work in this game. He went to Mills as the backup point guard, and Mills was great down the in that run to retake the lead at the end of the third and beginning of the fourth. When, uh, Corey Joseph didn't get much run at all, and then he went back to Mills over Joseph again when Parker was out. And I think Mills at this point, given how Parker is, is a better offensive option for the Spurs because of the way he spaces the floor, um, especially if he's in there with Manu as well. Uh, that's That can be a good combination, although Manu didn't have a great game again for the second straight night. Um, so so that that was something that really worked well. Um, how did, what, did you think, what did you think of his defense on Chris Paul? Uh, well, I think they moved Mills at the end onto Barnes. Yeah. And, Especially in the overtime, it was Danny Green mostly, who, I, as I said, I thought was a great option. Danny Green and also Manu a little bit really executed the scouting report much better than the rest of the Spurs defenders did, forcing Paul to his left, keeping him anytime he was on the left side of the floor, he kept him over there or even forced him to go left uh, you know, in, in one-on-one situations. Chris Paul loves to go right and really struggles for whatever reason to shoot his jumper going to the left. He likes to kind of fade and turn into his jumper, heading to his right. That right elbow jumper is just a great hot spot for him. He's money from there. And also, I can't remember the last time I saw Chris Paul finish a drive with his left hand either. So if you have him going left and it's hard for him to pull up and hard for him to finish, you have got you keep a lot of his options under reps. One thing that he can do is snake back to the right and then get to the elbow that way if they ice the pick and roll. Um but still, at least you're starting him off on the left side. You're not letting him get downhill. He's sort of going across the court. And if you really execute the ice well, you can prevent him, as, as our buddy Doug Everhart told me on Twitter, you can prevent him from getting back to the free throw line and sneaking back across the court to the right if you play that correctly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, it was a really nice job from Green. Paul didn't do all that much. 
in the overtime, and that was part of the reason. Another thing with this game, Spencer Hawes, zero minutes, and Hito, four minutes. Yeah, Jordan Farmar also had zero minutes, surprisingly enough, since he hasn't <laughs> uh, January or whatever it was is. That, so. Was that really a did you was that a UCLA jab or was that just a Clippers bench jab? It was it, yeah, it was a inefficient use of salary cap exceptions jab. Okay, uh, I'll t- I'll take it on those grounds. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, nothing, nothing. I, I got no antipathy for uh, for UCLA. I mean, I, I guess I'm supposed to. I went to U of A for law school, but uh, talking to a guy who has a signed farmer jersey in his in his closet, so <laughs> not a, not a pro one, of course. Um, another huge play, Paul. Um, I, I forget exactly how this play originated, but Matt Barnes missed a three in the overtime from the right right wing. Patty Mills was guarding him. He did a nice job on him because uh, Barnes could be a pest on the offensive glass, and that's a tough matchup for him. But So Mills leaked out, and they were cross-matched. Paul was on Mills, and Paul just sort of stood there just inside the three-point line, didn't get back, and Kawhi Leonard threw a great pass down to Mills for an easy, easy layup, and that was what put the Spurs up two possessions and made it real tough for the Clippers to come back at that point. Yeah, that was a huge play, and it was a... It was in a lot of ways. It was great recognition by all the Spurs of what was a mistake by Chris Paul. I mean, it's kind of one of those things where you need everything to go right. Kawhi needs to hit that. It's not. An, I don't think it's a particularly easy pass. I mean, he hit the pass, and then once you're at that point, I, that was when I kind of felt like, okay, it's going to take a lot for the Clippers to win this game. Yeah, and then there was another Clippers breakdown too, where the Spurs run a famous play. They, they ran it to Manu to win a game against the. Cavs earlier on when uh, the immortal Joe Harris was guarding him, as I recall, earlier in the year. Uh, I think Cleveland fans very happy he has been uh, excised from the rotation. But uh, basically, it's what a zipper cut is when a small player starts in the vicinity of the rim and goes back to the through-through line or top of the key area. So what the Spurs will do a lot of times is they'll fake that. You know, they run that a lot. So whoever's guarding him is going to get topside on him, just anticipating it, and then the guy will just go back door, be wide open, and the, and they do that in a way where the bigs are high so there's no help for it. And uh, Matt Barnes gave him an easy layup, easiest layup you're going to get to Kawhi. He did a great job of selling it and cutting back door on him. So that was another play that was huge in the overtime. Yep. Uh, anything else you want to go through in this game? Well, I mean, there's still the make-or-miss league aspect to it. Spurs are up by six. The Clippers come out. They try to run a play with a pin down. I think for Redick, it was hard to tell what was going on because the Spurs took him totally out of it. Doc was just, like, apoplectic on the sideline, you know, fist-pumping and not happy about it. And then Chris Paul makes an amazing shot. Uh, the Then the, the Clippers get another stop. Could have been a shot clock violation. Great that the refs did not call that. Uh and let the Clippers get out in transition. Uh, not very good transition defense from Kawhi. Let J.J. Redick get a wide-open three that could have tied it. Went down about as far as it can, and it popped out, and that was the game. The other thing that I wanted to mention is I was disappointed in the Clippers' last possession of regulation. They had, I believe it was about eight seconds. I think it was 7.9, 7.6. And it looked like the goal of the play was to get Chris Paul a mid-range to deep mid-range two-pointer. It ended up being on a switch Tim Duncan, but 
I feel like you should force the Spurs into potentially trying to make a mistake, and also considering Tim Duncan had five fouls, if you even push it that way, and let's say you don't get something, I think he's going to play that a little bit differently and maybe create an opportunity for you for either to draw that foul or to get a look because he doesn't want to commit it. Tim did a great job, especially considering that he had the five fouls on that play. Um, I would have liked to have seen something a little more creative. At least it wasn't a straight ISO. They just did a pick and roll. They got yep. the switch. Uh, Chris Paul, but Tim forced him out maybe another couple of steps from where he might like to be on that shot and uh, you know was able to get his long arms up on Paul. But, yeah, I mean, I think you can get a little bit more in those situations. The Warriors are a team that really shows that ability to – run something that has more than one option and still get the timing right. They have a great end-of-quarter play that they run that has multiple options on it. And so it would have been nice to see that from the Clippers. Also, the other thing was Blake Griffin had a great shot for the tip-in, and it looked like Matt Barnes also going for the tip-in, which, I mean, you can't fault it. You don't know where your guys are on that play. You just see the ball, and you got to go for it if you're an offensive rebounder. But, again, unlucky for the Clippers. They had two guys in great position for the offensive rebound, they they did execute well in the sense that they sent everyone to the offensive glass, which you should do in the late game situation because you don't have to worry at all about transition defense uh, with you know one second left as the ball comes off the rim. But Blake was right there, and Barnes kind of interfered with him, and Blake you could tell was really upset by that. I mean, not you know just the vagaries of fate. I'm sure not you know actually upset that Barnes did something wrong, but again just. So many just little tiny things. I mean, we've, we've talked about all of these things. Any one of these could have changed the game. I mean, and that's what I just love about playoff basketball. There's just so much pressure on every moment. And, I mean, if the Spurs had lost this game and were down 2-0, they're probably done. We're, they're probably done. And now you would have to say there may be favorites in this series. I can't wait to see what happens next. But, um, you know, this, this is this is a great series. Uh you know, it's too bad all the other ones are two zero. I guess. Yeah, and I don't think you can understate the you can I don't think you can overstate the importance of a one one margin going home versus two two nothing because you, otherwise you have to win four out of five with two of those games being on the road and now you get a much more manageable thing and theoretically you take home court back in that sense. So, yeah, and this and as has been pointed out to us, the Spurs have had some trouble in recent years on the road they're i think it's about a 500 team on the road and they're dominant at home so now they can rely on that more and and they also they can win at staples but they don't have to now yeah although i will say this i think if the spurs intend to win this this series they need to win both of these games when you're the road it is really really tough to win if you go back 2-2 tied up i mean you feel like it's tied we're in it but the statistics show that the home team in a 2-2 tied series is overwhelmingly likely still to win the series. It's not nearly as much of an advantage as you would think. So if the Spurs are going to win this series, I think they need to be up 3-1 going back to L.A. Uh, so why don't we move on to some of the other uh, events. There were two other games, and we're not going to spend a lot of time so much because that Clippers-Spurs game was so good. But Memphis-Portland, again, Memphis, or Memphis just locked down Portland. Dame Lillard not able to get anything going. I think that he really misses the presence of Wes Matthews providing more spacing because he was someone who either, if you went under the pick and roll, he could shoot the three. And he's been been off from three, too. That's, that's a big part of it. But then also, when he was able to turn the corner because they went over the screen, 
there wasn't there weren't nearly as many bodies in the lane as there are now. A lot of that's Memphis's great D also, but that additional spacing that Matthews provided and then you know would you would either leave LaMarcus Aldridge open on that pick and roll or you would have less help at the rim. So Dame really struggling to finish at the rim, can't make a three. Uh, extremely disappointing performance from him. Uh, you have any thoughts you want to share on that game? Yeah, the the other thing that I would convey is that there is a value to shooting threes, even if you're not making them at as high a rate as Wesley Matthews, and that, I think, is uh, what we're seeing with those guys. Alan Crabb attempted one three in this game. C.J. McCollum was 0 for 4. So when you're talking about the way guys are spacing, and as we talked about in the Washington series, even some of it is the perception of shooting. Drew Gooden's getting attention from Toronto's bigs, even though he's not making those shots. And so it's the idea of gravity in that sense. That's that's one of the terms, buzzwords that's out there for it now. And I think that the the lack of appropriate substitutional depth is a big factor. You know, if Anthony Morrow was the third big for, or not third big, the third swingman for them, it would obviously be very different. And so I think that you're completely right that that is a major explanation for it because defenses know that they're not going to get killed prevent, by preventing Damian Lillard from getting what he wants there. Dave Yeager, try, or I'm sorry, uh, Terry Stotts tried to make some adjustments in this game. And they were, I can understand them. I think they had some modicum of success. We talked about how they got killed by the small lineup in the first game. So what they did was when, when Memphis typically goes for that alignment at the start of the second quarter, he brought back LaMarcus Aldridge, and he played with Myers Leonard. And they did okay there, but not great. I mean, I could at least understand what they were trying to do, which was, all right, we're gonna, if you're going to go small, we're going to punish you with Aldridge. But what they ended up doing was just putting uh, the center, Kupos, on Aldridge, and then Leonard is not someone who can really punish the small lineup very well either, although he got loose for a couple of three-pointers. Um you know, he also went with Crab instead of McCollum. I think that's one thing that's kind of underrated, especially in today's NBA, is having wings who have the ability to crash down on the pick and roll, use their length to disrupt bigs, then still close out. Length is important there too. So even if you are you have smaller guys who are not getting abused in their one-on-one matchup, your health defense really suffers. I think that was part of the problem with McCollum in the first game. So they went to Crab. He didn't really do anything. Uh, McCollum didn't do much either. He really struggled to finish the rim. Portland just doesn't have the horses, frankly. Uh, you know, and uh, Memphis's point guards were excellent in this game. Also, Tony Allen uh, looking more like himself. He had a great defensive game, especially through the second quarter. Um, I think that's about it on, on that game, unless you have anything else. I have one other thing. This was a game that never got closer than nine in the fourth quarter, and yet Batum, Aldridge, and Lillard all played 40-plus. And uh, that's it's justifiable considering how horrible their bench is, but what do you think about pulling pulling your starters, not effectively giving up the game in that sense, but just getting them more rest considering those are the only guys who will lead you to the next round? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think they... It's just, it's a too difficult of a choice for them. You know, I mean, maybe you can say if they had some kind of a bench that could plausibly come in and say, all right, we have like these awesome energy players who might be limited in skill, but we're just going to get back into the game with energy and try harder. Maybe you might go with that and say, all right, we're going to give these guys some rest before the next game. But, you know, there's plenty of time off. Their bench is not a unit that's plausibly going to come back. I think you just got to go.
go down firing with the bullets you have, uh, even if your magazine's almost empty in the case of Portland. Yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. So we'll transition into the first game of the night, which was the only Eastern Conference game of the night and was substantially closer, if not, <laughs> I guess it was more interesting. And the Hawks fought off a surprisingly robust Nets challenge. What, what You watched more of this game than I did, though I did watch bits and pieces of it. What was your biggest takeaway? Yeah, I can all, I can barely even remember any of it after after that Spurs Clippers game. It uh, maybe washed away the memory of the Eastern Conference basketball. You know, Darren Williams was getting a lot of flack for missing what would have been the tying jump shot. Um, the Nets made a nice comeback, defended the Hawks pretty well down the end uh, because it looked like the Hawks were going to put this away with about five minutes left in the fourth quarter, and so that they were able to get a chance to tie. Uh, Lionel Hollins went with Iso Joe down two, and he actually was able to get into the lane, kick it to Williams, who was open in the corner, and he was able to do a pump fake, get to about 15 feet on the baseline, pull up, and the shot just rattled in and out. It, he was getting killed on social media for missing. I'm not sure why. I mean, it's not like he, you know, if he could have tried harder, that shot would have missed by, you know, been an inch shorter and gone in or something. Like, that seems kind of ridiculous to me. Agreed. Uh, I, I thought I thought there was there were other things that you could criticize for Darren's game, but I thought that last shot was. I, what happens sometimes is people have animosity or frustration with a player, and they're directing it, but they're not directing it in a fruitful direction. In that sense, so I think they were they wanted to find something to criticize, and they're like, "Oh, we didn't make that shot. That wasn't a gimme shot. It was it was a, a that wasn't. I wouldn't say it was tough, but it was definitely not an automatic. It wasn't a bunny or anything like that." To me, the more egregious one, though it wasn't as bad as it looked in real time, was his mistake on the other end that led to the Damari Carroll easy back cut. I believe was a dunk or was a layup, either way, and that was worse because that you know that helped shift the tide in the game. But and I don't even think that was I don't even think that was effort based. I think that was judgment based. Yeah, no, I, actually, I I understand it a little more after looking at the replay. He actually. There was someone open that he sort of thought about rotating to a little bit too late, and that's how Carroll got behind him. It looked ugly. It wasn't a great play, but, you know, maybe there should have been some help there, or he was put in a difficult position because the Nets failed to switch the way they should have out top on that play, and there was somebody at the top of the arc um, before then. So, But Damari Carroll was able to back cut him for a layup. It was one of the few buckets the Hawks were able to manage during that stretch to kind of stay ahead. Um one other note, a very little strategic thing that uh, was great was the Hawks actually went with no point guard on the defensive possession when they were up by two. Uh, they replaced Jeff Teague with Kent Bazemore. He was actually on Darren Williams. And uh, when Johnson drove, uh, Bazemore was able to help down on Brooke Lopez, still get out, run Darren Williams off the three-point line, which is critical when you're up two. At least you force him to only take a shot that can tie it and then Williams missed. So uh, I think if that's Jeff Teague, he isn't able to do both of those things. Great sub by Coach Bud, even though you know you, you wouldn't theorize. Most coaches are just like, all right, we need a point guard in there. But he knew it was a defensive possession. It didn't matter. He went with Bazemore, and that paid off. Yeah, it did. I, I'll note that Bazemore, he can defend ones. I think a position is who you defend. He can't run an sure. offense, but he can defend point guards. But, yeah, it's a gut, it's a I wouldn't say it's necessarily a gutsy call, but it's definitely a smart one and the call that more coaches should make. Well, so let's uh, let's move on to a couple of news items. One is in Dallas, 
Chandler Parsons, uh, he's out for the season now. Is that what they're saying with the yeah. knee issue? Have we ever gotten an actual diagnosis on, on what that is? I haven't heard one. And what's interesting is I think, I believe it was Carlisle was asked about it a few days ago, and they didn't seem like it was as severe as, as they were saying kind of it wasn't as severe as they were concerned about. And now he's missing the rest of the year with it. So it could be an issue of just things change. That does happen. Or it could be an issue that they were more optimistic, and then they realized that they they couldn't keep playing that if he was if he they couldn't realistically have him play. So that's a huge blow for them. And yeah, I mean, I I think that that loss makes it very, 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 very tough for them to win this series. Yeah, no, I th- I think they're done. Um, but interesting to review the timeline with Parsons. Uh, and I apologize if I get some some of the details a little bit wrong. Going off the top of my head here, but. He missed, I think, the last six games of the regular year with this issue. You know, we didn't know exactly what it was. Uh, he was questionable for game one. Then he came back. I think he, he had to leave the game, came back in, played over 35 minutes in that game. And now it's looking like he might have to have surgery. He wasn't able to play last night. So you, you wonder what exactly the issue was, what the process was there for him getting back. Mavs have always had a great medical staff. I don't want to impugn them without knowing all the facts, but not something you necessarily see a lot of that kind of uh, timing and and chain of events with an injured player. But, you know, it looks like he's going to be done now. It'll be interesting to see what the surgery actually ends up being for him. And the, the Mavericks also have a second player who's out for the rest of the season, ostensibly because of a back injury, and that's Rajon Rondo. And it was kind of jarring in a sense, but in I would say in a positive way as a media member, that apparently Carlisle was asked about it, and he said he's not going to play in our uniform again. Well, I, I don't think he said that definitively. He said that was his prediction. Oh, I think, okay. I think it was the quote. But, yeah, I mean, and I, I don't want to say a guy's not injured when he says he's injured. The timing is a little suspicious, but I at least take him in his word unless I have reason to think otherwise, Hard a hard reason to think otherwise. Fair. But the fact is, they will probably be better if he doesn't play, uh, given the way that he's played basically the entire time that he's been there. Um, you know, I think his free agency might do better if he can say, well, you know, I was injured, that's why I wasn't playing that well. Um, so, and, and he's apparently not going to be with the team. He's going to go get some opinions on his back, and uh, really hard to see how Dallas can come back from this. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe you could say they're going to rally now. They might win game three with kind of this uh, energy suck off their back. I mean, that's sort of been a buzzword as well at, uh, of late with guys like Ennis Cantor or Josh Smith leaving their teams, and maybe the Mavs will be energized by that. But uh, as we talked about last night, they don't have the horses in the series. Oh, come on, you're saying Raymond Felton can't key their comeback in the series? He actually hasn't been that bad this year in the he couple hasn't. That I've seen, but uh, he did hit a game-winning shot in a completely meaningless game against Denver. But, um, yeah, so so that's, that's probably enough on, on the Mavs. Um, the biggest NBA news of the day is uh, Scott Brooks is fired. Yeah, I, I and he's fired, and we'll have to see how their coaching search goes. It seems to me like you make this kind of a massive move with somebody in mind, whether that, we don't know who that is yet. They're the two names that are floating around are Billy Donovan and Kevin Ollie, who both have connections with either the Thunder or the Thunder players. But I think that it will be a, a wider search than that. But I, my instinct is that when you fire an incredibly popular coach, 
Though the Warriors apparently did this without having somebody in mind, considering how close Steve Kerr was to going somewhere else, it feels like that's the way to do it. Yeah, that, that may not be realistic. It's probably especially not realistic when you're looking at potentially hiring assistant coaches from other teams who might still be in the playoffs. Alvin Gentry comes to mind. He is someone who at least, given the credit that he's gotten for the ball movement-oriented system the Warriors have installed this year, the way they played in Phoenix where they, they moved the ball a little bit more and spaced the floor, um, I think that he would be someone who would very much come to mind for me as someone who can fix Oklahoma City's very specific ailments that we talked about yesterday. I, I gave most of the rest of my thoughts in, in yesterday's show, but just to summarize, I think that you want somebody who can fix their biggest problem, which is having a little better offensive system with more ball movement. Um, and I think, you know, given the success that Gentry has had working with Chris Paul as an assistant, Steve Nash, uh, Steph Curry now as an assistant, uh, he might be a great uh, tutor for Russell Westbrook and, they could become really scary offensively, and if they can maintain the defense, that would be that would be huge. It would also who they hire as the coach could be very interesting for who they end up keeping as a free agent. Singler is a free agent, and as Cantor most notably is a free agent. And if they bring in someone who is a little bit more, I guess we'll say modern in their offensive philosophies and value spacing more, Cantor is someone who may not fit into that quite as well but we'll we'll see who they hire uh i think but i think you got to get someone who has some sort of a track record or at least a high level assistant who does mm -hmm. uh, getting a more complex system where it's not just sets you you have something to fall back on and you're moving the ball from side to side and attacking and spreading the floor a little bit more with shooters and letting that great individual talent go to work yeah, I think Gentry makes a lot of sense there. I, I I would hope that his name gets gets into the discussion. I also think it would be good for them, especially if they go with, with Gentry, though he has plenty of head coaching experience. I've been thinking a lot about the idea of bringing in somebody as a defensive coordinator as well. Ron Adams gets credit for doing that with the Warriors, or maybe even the recently fired Mike Malone, who I think would relish the opportunity to be a piece of what Oklahoma City is going to do the next couple of years. All right, I think that's all we've got for today. Thanks again for tuning in. We will be back tomorrow night and talking about the Warriors and Bulls play tomorrow. Who else? Who am I forgetting? I, I'm totally just in in uh, in my own world now after the intensity of that Spurs-Clippers game. We also get game three of Cavaliers-Celtics, this one in Boston. Ah, all right. Well, good. Yeah, th those, will be, uh, those will be two interesting games tomorrow. <laughs> Three interesting teams, maybe we'll, we'll put it that way, or four if you want to count New Orleans. But in any event, let's end it for today, and we'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Thanks.
Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.